These are the facts. The world is in trouble, but we're going to straighten it out. We are going to build the wall, okay? Don't worry. America first. Together, we will make America great again. That's what I do. I fix things. We're going to straighten it out. Unprecedented, our weekly look at the goings-on in the White House and the efforts of Donald J. Trump as President of the United States to change the world. Every week, in the company of Adrienne Collins, we look at uh, that was the week, according to Donald. Adrienne, welcome to the programme. Thank you very much, George. Uh, Adrienne, uh, what for you was the big thing last week? I think it would be very difficult to ignore the Muslim ban, although they don't want us to particularly call it a ban, according to Sean Spicer and the rest of the crew of, uh, I suppose, propagandists that he has running for him, including Kellyanne Conway. They want us to consider it a, a stay on visa applications. That was certainly the biggest one because there was a huge amount of protests around airports, around streets, around cities, that is showing that there is a certain level of uh, pushback to what Donald Trump is trying to do across America, not just in, I suppose, what we heard a lot about during the the election, which would be the liberal coastal elites. It was across the entire of the United States. I disagree entirely. I think uh, there are vast swathes of America where they are totally in agreement with what their president is doing. Vast. And and also there's a view, because you listen to Merle Streep or, or somebody else, that every intelligent person is opposed to that. I lived in America, and I'm in constant contact with people in America who, who are are professionals and but Republicans, but but architects, doctors, dentists, lawyers, all who believe he's doing the right thing. I think there is a massive underestimation of how fearful a substantial proportion of the American population is that they're watching their country slip away. And they're not alone in that. The French feel that way, the Dutch feel that way, the English feel that way. And I think there's then there is a minority, and I believe it to be a minority. It's a minority of people who think they know best. 10,000 people at JFK Airport as a percentage of the population of New York is the equivalent to 300 people at Dublin Airport. That's the size of the protest. Let's not get carried away here. There was more protest about a right-wing speaker at the University of California, Berkeley, than there was about Trump. But also there's a there's an element that up to – there was a certain complacency. I definitely think you're right. The people underestimated the very size of the amount of people that would be able to support Trump throughout the entirety of his campaign from the very start of the primaries all the way through to the day he won the election. Nobody ever gave him the credit for being able to turn out a base of voters. And obviously the Muslim ban – I'm going to keep using that term. Even Spicer doesn't like it. The Muslim ban – appeals to that base, but it also energizes the opposite side. The Democrats, certainly with the choice of Hillary, were pretty much thinking that they would walk their way to the White House and everything else would be fine. They ignored the rest of the party structure around the country that didn't turn out voters. And they are now finding that there is something that they can stand in opposition to that is energizing people. Whether or not it was 10,000, 20,000 or the proportion of a population, the fact that there were that many people who in liberal elite New York when they could have been having coffee under the Brooklyn 
bridge or whatever, whatever that Dumbo is, they decided to turn out on a Saturday or a Friday night to go to JFK to protest this ban. I think that's more extraordinary than ordinary. But there was a Sinn Féin ban. You know, like they didn't they didn't give Jerry Adams a visa. The concept of a country being able to decide who can come and who can not, not come, I think, is part of the very idea of a sovereign nation. Now, where the problem comes in is that people of a green card or people like that who previously were allowed in, what, what Trump has done is to say uh, Obama identified these seven nations as a threat to our security and... I'm not letting people in from that. Now, that, I know you're hung up about this, but Trump has done more than just ban uh, Muslims in that last week. For instance, uh, one of the things that I'm deeply worried about, much more than Muslim bans, is he's going to start relaxing regulations on banks. The net effect of relaxing regulations on banks has, mean, has meant that the shares in Goldman Sachs have gone up 30% since his arrival. 30% of Goldman Sachs, who are the arch capitalists of the world. Now, we saw what lack of regulation did. Lack of regulation in the late 1920s created the Great Depression. It then effectively, because all the regulations that had been brought in by Roosevelt to prevent this ever happening again, were relaxed by Bush and others, so then the banks turned loose and you saw what we got. The real danger with Trump is he is going to turn the banking pirates on the rampage again. And that is far more worrying, I think, for a world than the fact that they're blocking people at the airport. I think you're right that definitely there is certain, certainly an extent of something we've seen that Trump has done regularly throughout his, throughout his first two weeks in office and also throughout the primaries, which is to throw a shiny object in front of the media, something like the Muslim ban, cause a huge protest cause a lot of people to get up in arms and then on the other side he's doing something that's probably a little bit more worrying in this relaxing of the Dodd-Frank regulations around banking. Now I'm totally in agreement with you there. That also to me seems to be contrary to what his base voted for. A lot of his base would have voted for him on the, on the thought that he would be able to turn the economy around, on the idea that they would get more money back in their pockets because he was going to make America great again. Now relaxing regulations on the bank on the bigger on the biggest banks supervised by people who come from those biggest banks he's surrounded himself with people from Goldman Sachs like uh, Mnuchin as well who's probably going to oversee this the implementation of this regulation that that runs contrary to what a lot of people would have voted for him for they wanted him to stand up to the big corporations that they thought were taking their jobs away and the banks are, are would have been a part of that problem if you were to ask me, is Donald Trump a good idea? I'd say certainly not. Mm. Um, I think he will create more damage than good in, in his four years because I don't believe for a second he's going to get re-elected unless the Democrats stick their size 11s in, it again, in mm. their mouth and lose. So if the Democrats put up half a candidate, they'll win in four years' time. How much damage can Trump do in four years? That's really the question. Um, and uh, I think he could do quite a lot. Um, the, the idea uh, that uh, he is going to do something about illegal immigrants like our 
20, 30, 40,000 Irish undocumented over there. Uh, Clinton promised that in 1996. Obama promised that. Obama deported people. Clinton deported people. So first of all, the deportation of illegals has been part of American policy since the year dot. Even ordinary people like you and me find it not difficult to get into America, but you always sense that when you when you go to America, you might not. There might be something wrong with your paperwork, and they say, tough luck, you're not coming in. I saw it happen to my wife uh, for a purely bureaucratic reason. So he will deport, and uh, I don't think there's an issue with that. Do you? No, well, Obama, it's important to remember all this, and it's been a fact that's been thrown around since the ban came in is that Obama did deport more people than any president previous to him. But the problem with the ban is not simply that it's a Muslim ban and that's why people are up in arms. There's two sides to it. One of it is that it was incompetently done, I think is the fairest way to put it. There was very little thought behind it. None of the usual bodies that would oversee a ban like this were given a chance to review it. If it is a ban that is supposed to focus on, uh, as you were saying, hotspots, that Obama had identified, then it doesn't make sense that Pakistan and Saudi Arabia are not on it. But there's a far more difficult diplomatic implications to putting a ban in place on those two countries than there is to the countries that he's chosen. Now, part of it as well is that Syria is one of the places and those people do genuinely need help. That's one of the tenets of the American or one of the American ideals. And that's the challenge that I think people are seeing, that they would always, you know, give me your huddled masses. That's that's the people that are being forced out of Syria. And those are the people that are being blocked from coming into the country. But they're being blocked in uh, Eastern Europe. The Hungarians mm-hmm. are blocking them. Uh, the Australians actually put them on islands uh, and don't allow them into the country. Therefore, I found it very unusual that Trump, you know, would hang up on the Australian Premier <laughs> Navarro, given I would have thought that the Australian attitude uh, to refugees and migrants is is very much uh, Trumpish in its attitude. We're not going to allow them in. Um, I, I think the problem for Trump as the president is. He is clearly impulsive. He is clearly, uh, and this is why he did it in the first week, course you're right, um, that a bit of thought would have helped. But he had he had given so many hostages to fortune during the campaign. He had said, immediately I'm in office, I will do this. So therefore he had boxed himself in a corner that he had to do this. I also think that if you're the kind of person that Trump is, uh, a multi-billionaire businessman who just does his own decisions, uh, then he gathers around him very often people who say, yes sir, no sir, three bags full and therefore that's what happened. There's no, I don't think there are any contrary voices whereas Obama was the opposite university lecturer he was hypnotised by the idea of getting agreement from everybody. Now it's our uh, Trump podcast every week, unprecedented me and Adrian Collins look at the week that was by Donald Trump. Do you respect Putin? I do respect him. Do you? Why? Well, I respect a lot of people, but that doesn't mean I'm going to get along with him. He's a leader of his country. 
I say it's better to get along with Russia than not. And if Russia helps us in the fight against ISIS, which is a major fight and Islamic terrorism all over the world, right. major fight, that's a good thing. Will I get along with them? I have no idea. It's He's very a possible killer, I though. Won't. Putin's a killer. A lot of killers. You got a lot of killers. Why, you think our country's so innocent? You think our country's so innocent? Now, uh, the... Uh are you worried that he's cozying up to Russia? I think you sort of have to be, but there's also a very interesting parallel. I read a good piece by, uh, it was in The Guardian from a couple of weeks ago, and it was by a Chilean, um, I believe a Chilean author, who made the point that, uh, no, sorry, it was in The New York Times, that this is how a lot of nations felt when America was interfering in their democracies or their democratic processes back in the 70s, that the CIA would choose somebody that they wanted to overthrow or choose somebody that they wanted because as a candidate. Because they did exactly that in Chile. Exactly. They did exactly this in Chile. They did exactly this in a number of South American countries. They got involved and now they see what it's like on the other side when a global power decides that they want to meddle or they want to push as far as they can their choice. And it was the same tactics. It was fake news. It was propaganda. And it was spreading, I suppose, disinformation about the opposite candidate to get the person that you want in charge. Now, America possibly went a little bit further even if the result they didn't want ended up taking place. If, they, if, if the candidates they had chosen lost, they would often keep pushing. But Russia seems to have won in this case. All right. But it, just the other thing, uh, part of the protesters, this idea that um, Hillary won the popular vote and therefore the wrong person was, was president, uh, do you buy that? I do. I mean, to a certain extent... <laughs> The popular vote, the system has been changed. If you go back and look at, I wrote about this for, for Newstalk.com a couple of weeks ago and interviewed uh, David Daly, who wrote a book on this. The basic redistricting efforts that the, that the Republicans have put in place over the past eight, ten years, where they saw what happened under Obama, that they were totally swept and they decided that from the very kind of state level upwards, that they would build towards redistricting the maps so that they would have control of the districts that gave them control of Congress, the House and Senate. So that has been the effort over, I suppose, almost a decade. It's It's been a brilliant coup almost, you could call it. And for the price that they would have invested in winning the White House, for a th- less than a third or less than even you know 10% of that, they now have control of all of the branches of government, partially by fluke because they got Trump in, but partially because they control local government. So the fact that Hillary won the popular vote doesn't really matter all that much because all around the country, Republicans are in charge in all the different states. Now, obviously, there are still the places, California, New York, where Democrats are always going to win, but they have control of the local issues and now control of the national issues. So whether or not Hillary won, she was always going to be facing an uphill battle in the same way that Obama was blocked at every turn. Yeah, the the other complaint by the protesters is that if only 77,000 people extra had voted, uh, she would have swung, I think, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and all that sort of thing, all that Rust Belt, 77,000 swung it. But I remember... 
Dick Spring winning an election in Kerry by four votes. Now, it didn't actually... He was a TD with a majority of four votes. Bertie Ahern was a TD with a majority of thousands of votes. But when they walked in to Leinster House, they were the same. So therefore, I think the size of the victory is irrelevant. Trump becomes president. The problem now for Trump is that I honestly believe that he didn't think he was going to win. I think that was pretty evident from the way that they transitioned Correct. in from, from president-elect to president. There's still, there was a piece only yesterday, I think, in the New York Times that said they're still meeting in the dark in one of the cabinet rooms because they don't know how to turn on the light switches. So they were totally unprepared for this. The, the process of putting in place all of the cabinet picks that he needs to has been rushed and also disorganised because of the fact that he didn't actually think he would need to put cabinet pieces in. I think in terms of an upset, you have to go really back in history. You have to go back to um, the, the, the late... 40s, um, when Harry Truman, who had succeeded Roosevelt, because Roosevelt died in office, then there's an election, and the the I, I was the Chicago paper, or the New York paper, or whatever, came out with the banner headline that Dewey, Tom Dewey, who was the Republican, Dewey wins. Right? Mm. Now, in fact, Dewey didn't win. Truman won. So Truman probably went into that not expecting to win. Every other candidate has gone into that election with a reasonably good idea I'm going to win. And even in the case of Gore, who lost, or Bush Sr. or others, they would have had a plan in place. I don't think Trump... I, I think I thought more that Trump was going to win than Trump did, if you know what I mean. And therefore, he had no plan. And suddenly he's in the White House and he says, oh, shoot, who's going to be my Secretary of State? And then he relies, in terms of his PR, in people like Spicer and Kelly Conway, or whatever mm. her name is, on these people who are neophytes in the idea of Washington. Uh, definitely. Uh, Spicer is one of the people who, by all accounts, has been around all the right places for about 15 years looking to get some sort of job like this. And I think we saw in his first press conference, he was totally unprepared. And there were kind of rumblings that he was actually sent out because Trump doesn't particularly like him. He was a pick by other Republicans. That he was sent out to lie about the inauguration figures blatantly without having any proper information on which to do so or, or you know, alternative facts which <laughs> to put forward because Trump wants him to fail. So there's still a little element of he has to work with the Republicans that he, two weeks before the general election, called ineffective, weak, said the shackles were off and now I can finally do what I want. And now he has to work back with those people, Paul Ryan. You see people like Marco Rubio who denounced him during the campaigns having to having to back all of his initiatives now because he essentially has whipped up the base and is in charge of their party. So... I don't think he planned either to be in power or to have to work with these people later down the line at all. And now there's a infighting and a lot of political work to be done. Something that you were saying earlier on, Trump is not used to having to please other people. 
It's the first of our podcasts of That Was the Week with Donald Trump, and it's unprecedented uh, series one, episode one, me in the company of Adrienne Collins. As we look at the week Donald Trump has had in the White House. But to that end, uh, Adrian, where you talk about he had to work with people, nobody was more difficult in terms of who he had to work with than the outgoing attorney general appointed by Obama who was a Democrat who was going to block him at every turn. So when people are, are worrying about him sacking her, she had to sack her. I think absolutely. he had. She knew once she opposed the ban as being unconstitutional or worrying that it would get caught up in the courts, and turns out she was right, that he was going to have to sack her. Now, she could have resigned around it, but I think making the stand against him made a, made a, a bigger point. And he will get a chance to appoint an attorney general that he thinks will work with him better on a number of these issues. But I don't think it, it... This is kind of goes back to the point that you were saying earlier on, that he is not used to dealing with anybody who is going to tell him no. In fact, the only person I would imagine in the cabinet who will speak to him in that way is probably General Mattis. And he seems to have an affinity towards military men, towards people who have experience in that kind of field, who he will respect when they say to him an idea from outside of the box or what he would consider outside of the box. But you are, the, the key thing about the courts that you mentioned, and, and we, we finish where we started on the Muslim ban, if, if you think that, and it's a mystery to me anyway, I mean, it's a mystery to a lot of people listening, how a circuit court judge uh, in 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 Washington State makes a decision. Then we read that's overturned by a federal judge in California, whereas we're much more used to a centralized form of law where we'll go to the high court, to the Supreme Court and everything else. Now, this is going to go to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court has only eight people on it, not nine, mm. uh, because there's a blank spot. So the Supreme Court is going to vote for four, four conservatives, for liberals, and it's going to be hung up in the Supreme Court until Trump can get his man in to decide the casting vote. So this ban, now no longer a ban, could play for a long time. It absolutely could, but I think it's already highlighted a couple of issues about what we will, I suppose, have to get used to for the rest of the Trump presidency. One, he's going to make moves or executive orders or say things that we can't predict, that the people even around him, the Department of Homeland Security, all the various departments who would be involved normally in drafting some sort of executive order like this can't predict either and are not ready to implement. And secondly, that he's going to try and pressure the other branches of government, the checks and balances that the American system has built itself on and has prided itself on. He's going to try and pressure public opinion around those checks and balances. We've seen that with his attack on Judge Curiel during the primaries to say that this judge, because he's of Mexican heritage, had a conflict of interest in dealing with his Trump university case. It's the same thing again now with him saying that the judge who has blocked this order is a so-called judge and that if anything happens, they should blame him, this judge, and not Donald Trump if there's any sort of terrorist attack. Can I just say yeah. that... Uh, I'm less concerned, by the way, about all this tweeting mm. um, because when we're in a different world, okay? And if you think, again, of Roosevelt, who connected with the people more uh, than any president before him, 
What did Roosevelt do? He used what was essentially the new technology of the 1930s, the radio. And people gathered around their radios every week to hear Roosevelt talk to them about uh, the financial crisis that was engulfing the nation. Within a decade, as Britain stood alone in World War II, Churchill used that self-same technology to reach the people. Now, I think, and maybe I'm giving Trump more credit than he deserves, I think Trump is communicating with the people in the way they know how to communicate in a maximum of 140 characters. Well, I think that's absolutely right. The the similar transition between radio and television saw debates won and lost on the basis of what one of the candidates looked like while the other one was speaking. And people who listened to the radio thought that, I believe it was Nixon had won, people who listened to, or people who watched on television had the complete opposite opinion. So you're right to say that there is an element of using the new technology. But also, none of them were using the new technology to question the legitimacy of the judiciary in the country, which is what Trump is doing. And that is a worry because that is designed to keep him in check if he makes an executive order that is particularly poorly put together in this way. We'll have to wait and see. There's uh, four times 52 in my primary school maths is 208. So there are 207 more episodes to come of Unprecedented as we follow the work of President Donald Trump of the United States of America. You have it here on the podcast in the company of me and Adrian Collins. Every week.